One and all guys and ghouls to Horror Palooza, the chocolate syrup in the Bates Motel Room Shower of Horror Podcasts. My name is Sir Ian Dangerous, aka your Uncle Frank, and you can find me on Twitter at Sir Ian Dangerous and also on Instagram at Sir Ian Dangerous. Welcome back to the show and welcome to episode two of season three. If you're just joining us, stop. Go back to episode one, start from there. Better yet, start at the very beginning, go to season one, start from there. But if that's too much work, it's okay. I'll give you a quick recap. It's October, it's fall, it's Halloween time, and that means it's time to do a horror movie marathon, and that is what I am doing right here on the show. I'm watching a whole bunch of Halloween horror etc. style movies. I'm watching 31 of them, one for every day of the month of October, uh, but it's not just any marathon. I'm going to talk about those movies today. I'm going to talk about the, uh, the second batch of those movies today. But I have rules. I have rules I have to follow in order to pick these movies before I watch them. And here are the rules. And, and, and by the way, because it's 2020, I made the rules harder on myself because nothing can be easy in 2020. So I made the rules. I doubled up everything because normally I can't watch anything in the previous five years. Well, this year, 10 years. Nothing I've watched in the previous 10 years. Normally, I make myself watch at least three foreign movies, movies in languages other than English. This year, six. I got to watch six of those. I have to have at least one film from every decade from the 40s and earlier on. So I've got 40s and earlier counts as one, and then 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, teens. I have to have one movie from each of those. Only this year, it's doubled, so two Two movies from every one of those decades. Also, multiple films from the same franchise count as one, and they have to be horror movies. Kind of obvious right there. It's been a lot of fun so far. Uh, I've watched Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter from 1974. I watched The Endless from 2017. The Taking of Deborah Logan from 2014. The Stuff from 1985. Tigers Are Not Afraid from 2017. Cry of the Banshee from 1970, and 1BR, or One Bedroom, from 2019. And and speaking of 1BR, we actually have a special treat this year. Starting this week, I am airing part one of an interview I did with producer Alok Mishra and stars Naomi Grossman and Clayton Hoff from the movie 1BR. So stay tuned for that later on in the show. We had a lot of fun, and we found out some crazy stories from the filming of that movie, but... Before we get to that, I want to talk about week two of the horror movie marathon. We had some H.P. Lovecraft, some Boris Karloff, some Stuart Gordon, some sex, some violence, some good movies, and some fucking awful ones. But before I get going, I'd like to once again thank my musical contributors, the Tiki Creeps and 414 Beg. They're both on iTunes. 
The Tiki Creeps are at tikicreeps.com. 414Beg is on Instagram. And he just released an amazing new album on Spotify. It's called Violence. Go check that out. Of course, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to Horror Palooza on your podcast app of choice, wherever you found us. Hit that subscribe button. Leave a review, a rating, share us with your friends. Help get the word out there. We are on the Orbital Jigsaw Network at orbitaljigsaw.com. And if you like pro wrestling, you can check out Busted Wide Open, where Nick Howell and I run down the news and hottest topics about WWE, AEW, NXT, New Japan, and more. Uh, you can find that on Twitch t- twitch.tv forward slash Busted Wide Open or at BWO Podcast on Twitter. So enough of that. Let's get on with this. Two week two of the horror movie marathon and talk about some horror movies. Day eight. Day eight, we went and watched Dolls from 1987, directed by Stuart Gordon, who most people know from Reanimator, which, of course, is one of the greatest horror movies ever made, full stop. This was written, however, by Ed Naha, who actually made this script with Gordon and Brian Usna called The Teeny Weenies. And uh, if you've never heard of the Teeny Weenies, that's because it's more popularly known as Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. But that movie was a, a, a different story. That got made later. Uh, but the same guy helped him make this movie, helped Stuart Gordon make this movie, Dolls, which uh, if you want to see Stuart Gord- Gordon go in a bit of a different direction than Reanimator or From Beyond, there's, there's this movie, which, which really owes a huge chunk of its concept to the film The Old Dark House with Boris Karloff, which I reviewed a year or two ago. Now, the setup to this is the exact same as that movie. There's a group of strangers that are marooned in an old dark house in a torrential rainstorm, and they find out that that house is occupied by an eccentric couple with a secret. Only in this case, it's that they make killer dolls. Now, that concept isn't new, but the execution here is a lot of fun. I was actually surprised at how whimsical and amusing this movie was. It's it's not to be taken seriously, as you might suspect with the concept of killer dolls, any movie that involves killer dolls, but I it was this one was one where they they really had that whimsical nature and they they went all the way with it and it feels fun the entire time. Now, I can imagine some people would be annoyed with the precocious central child in the film, kind of the main child character in the film but as someone who typically finds kids in movies kind of similar to worms in my orange juice this actually this kid was shockingly pretty tolerable uh she's pretty cute she actually seems to be pretty smart most of the time now it does help that there's an adult in the film who is also sold as a like a grown man child who becomes her friend but even he is more like slapstick and lou costello style mugging than actually being Full-on irritating, although every, you know, people might find different interpretations of it. I, they, you might have a different experience than I did, but I didn't, I didn't mind it. The evil parents of the girl, are, they're, they're evil. The crass punk hitchhikers slash thieves are crass. The creepy old couple are both creepy and sweet and kind of endearing. I mean, everything, everything is there. It just clicks. It just is what it is. And the, here's the thing. A movie called Dolls isn't going to work. If the dolls don't work. But you know what? In this movie, the dolls work. They are genuinely unsettling. Now, some are more so than others. And your investment in the stop motion that they use for some of their movements will depend on when you were born. You know, I find that youngins tend to be impervious to such fake-looking special effects. But there are some shots and moments that will creep out 
anybody. And that's saying something. Uh, just They have these dolls with their dead eyes, but their bloodshot eyes, too, and little sharp teeth. Uh, it, it's just something like, it reminds me a little bit of the, uh, the dolls from Barbarella, but just they seem more innocent when at rest. So it's, it's, it's a good look for this movie. Overall, it turns out to be like a fable or a morality tale. And it's, honestly, it's almost more of a kid's movie than a true adult horror. And that's not a slight. I could see showing this to an, an older or more mature child, but I mean, there's some blood and a bit of gore but there's nothing on the level of, of Gordon's reanimator. But then again, you know, fewer on that level. Um, there's a hint of a nipple at one point as a woman's being dragged off by the dolls. But overall, it's a pretty fairly tame movie in that respect. Uh, it's just more creepy because of the dolls than being outright outlandishly gory. But it's also a fun 80s throwback. And the, the ambiance with the dark and stormy night and the creaky old house full of dolls with bloodshot eyes and sharp teeth is a good mood setter for this time of year. So definitely recommend that if you like a little cute, cheesy old 80s movie. Worth a watch. But also from the 80s, the next night I got in a Stuart Gordon mood and I decided to watch Bride of Reanimator, which of course is the sequel to Reanimator. But this time Stuart Gordon didn't come back. It's directed by Brian Yuzna. Uh, and this one, this one, our favorite mad scientist, Herbert West, is still up to it with his reluctant assistant, Dan Kane. Only instead of just bringing people back from the dead, now they're trying to create life from scratch. And as the title implies, that's female life because Dan is still sad about Barbara Crampton dying in the first movie and we all are she apparently her agent told her that she was too big to be in this movie by this point which is it's just too bad because you can never get enough Barbara Crampton that shockingly this movie isn't that much fun relatively speaking at least for most of its runtime it's kind of slower pace it's more of a a low energy film than reanimator which is this kinetic energized insanity filled film and it's with a shorter runtime but without comparison if i wasn't trying to compare the two this is still a very gory morbid and thoroughly unpleasant affair and i say that as a compliment it helps that the final act is utter fucking madness and in, and that's kind of in keeping with brian yuzna's pattern of movies that lumber along until an absolutely bonkers finale and i'm you know, you can look at his his movie Society, which has, I mean, probably one of the that movie has one of the most insane endings I've ever seen in my life. But it takes a long time to get there. And Reanimator three, he did Reanimator three as well. Also, a problem with that movie. Um, so Stuart Gordon decided to pass on this, and that's why Brian Yuzna, who was his producer for Reanimator, took over. And at least he got a respectable effort out of it. I got to say that. It lives up to the, the splatter and the body horror aspects of the first. It goes even further in some moments. They give, you, get, you get an army of these twisted and malformed body composites. I don't even know what to call them. They put people together wrong. <laughs> put back together wrong, like Metalocalypse. Uh, you get, a, um, you get the, the, a modern Frankenstein's bride, complete with like gaping swaths of exposed muscle and bleeding sutures. And there's also a, there's a flying head. There's a flying head. No, I mean, literally a flying head. It flaps around on a pair of sewn-on bat wings. I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's, it's worth a watch, even if the special effects on it aren't 
that great. There's a lot of effects in this movie that do work really well and are, are freakishly gory. But unfortunately, all of this can't save it from falling apart at the very, very end, but eh, at least it tried. So once again, this movie stars the always magnificent Jeffrey Combs as Herbert West, the mad scientist with the glowing goo that can make corpses and body parts and shaggy cats come back to life. But this time, it starts off with him going to South America with with Bruce Abbott, who's playing Dan Kane again, in this utterly insane opening sequence in a in a bloody revolutionary frontier hospital. This it's just covered in gore and there's explosions everywhere. It's madness. And then he returns to Miskatonic with some iguanas that make his serum able to meld undead body parts. Eh. If that sounds insane, welcome to Reanimator. But the sad thing is, the actual melding body parts gimmick only really comes to fruition once or twice before the climax itself. And this is a movie that could have used some more pizzazz before its final 20 minutes. And even that final stretch just has some awful blocking, some awful dialogue and and acting as the newly resurrected bride tries to figure out her place in the world and Abbott's cane seems unrealistically entranced by this shambling monstrosity. But if you are looking for a gory, bizarre, and dark movie and are a fan of the first reanimator or a disciple of Jeffrey Combs that somehow missed this one, then definitely check this out. I don't want to make it sound like this is a bore. It's not. But it's just not as relentless inventive or as fun as its predecessor uh also funnily enough the love interest in this movie was played by fabiana udeno who most people will recognize as a lot of china from the austin powers movies back before she let men pass wind before her and she just let them cover her in gore instead so also this movie was followed by beyond reanimator in 2003 which i mentioned earlier which is a film that has a lot more Jeffrey Combs, more reanimated corpses, and in the climax, there's a kung fu fight between a rat and a reanimated penis. I'm not fucking kidding. So you can check that one out, too. But on day 10, I moved on from the schlocky 80s stuff, and I went to 2019 on Hulu and watched The Lodge. And this is directed by Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala, and it's written by them with Sergio Kursky. And what a wonderfully dark, uncomfortable, and exquisitely unpleasant movie this is. Uh, It's about a pair of unhappy children who are forced to spend time alone with their father's new mistress in a cold, snowed-in lodge, titular lodge, at Christmas time. And this mistress was once in a fundamentalist Christian death cult, and she may or may not be fully recovered. Yeah. Now, the setup, The opening for this movie, the first 20 minutes, is just magnificent. There's such a specific point of view. There's so little given to us so that every shocking twist and every reveal comes out of nowhere. And this feeling of inexorable dread is just stifling. The way we're introduced to characters is brilliant. And the performances, the characters across the board are low-key, they're underplayed, they're inscrutable, and that's how it should be in a movie like this. At all times, you are wondering about motivations, you're questioning the truth, and at some points, you're even uncertain about reality itself. And the pace is slow. This is like 
an A24 movie being released by Neon. And like A24's catalog, you just have to sit back and soak in the feeling of this movie and not be waiting for the next jump scare that won't necessarily come. So you might recognize some of the faces of these people, these actors. Uh, Jaden Martell, he plays the older brother in this movie. He was in the new It movies. He was main character Bill Denbro, the young Bill Denbro in the first movie. Uh, the father in this movie was is Richard Armitage. You might know as Thorin in the Hobbit movies. There's a cameo by Alicia Silverstone. And uh, main actress, the mistress, is played by Riley Keough who was one of the brides in Mad Max Fury Road and also happens to be Elvis's granddaughter. So a pretty solid cast. But here's what makes the movie special as well. At no point do you ever think about the acting or the actors. It's just, it's too naturalistic. And the scenes are too quietly played to feel like you're watching acting. It would do a, hmm, it would do a disservice to this film to talk about its plot in any more depth, so I'm not going to. So I'm going to mention that the cast is excellent. The cinematography is literally chilling. It's supposed to be cold, and it feels like it. Even if, even if we don't see the mist coming from the characters' mouths in some scenes where maybe we should, but it's still, it still it feels so damn cold. And the story itself is surprising, and it takes some twists we see coming, and then it twists those again as they happen in ways that we don't expect. I saw... I saw one of the major plot reveals coming from a mile away, but I didn't see how they were going to deal with it, and how they dealt with it was more shocking than the surprise itself, and I loved it. And I was thrilled with the ending. I tend to be picky about bows being wrapped too neatly or too much explanation or pat finales that leave you feeling like you know everything there is to know. I feel like this movie set up a clean, simple premise. It executed it well throughout its runtime and then leaves cleanly like a cold knife through an artery with only a couple of plot holes that could even be somewhat explained away as need be. Very few nitpicks with this movie. Ultimately, it's a quiet and utterly chilling movie that has a thick sheen of fatalism and misanthropy and this darkness that lingers long past its pitch black finale. Very good movie. Totally recommend it. But I can't say the same about the next one because I went to 2005 on Hulu and watched An American Haunting, written and directed by Courtney Solomon. It's a pseudo-retelling of the Bell Witch Haunting from the 19th century in the American South, specifically Tennessee. Uh, Amer- An American Haunting tells the story of the Bell family and their encounter with a supernatural entity that has a particular affinity for their young daughter. Yes, you've seen that movie a million times before. But this is different because this movie is unbelievably stupid. Let's just get that out of the way right off the bat. Now, in diverting from the actual accounts of the Bell Witch and its character and its legend, Solomon's trying to give us a new meaning to what the entity might have been, and it is just as ham-handed and poorly executed as you might expect from the director of the apocalyptically bad Dungeons & Dragons movie. Seriously, if you ever want to do nothing but cringe for an hour and a half, I suggest the Dungeons and Dragons movie. It's bad. And Solomon repeats his efforts here. He's relying on these spectacular actors like Donald Sutherland, Sissy Spacek. He's got up-and-comers like James Darcy and Rachel Hurd Wood who have proven themselves in other projects. And he shores up his overbaked and underwhelming directing and his ham-fisted and obvious writing with them. Now, while there is an attempt 
at period dialogue in this movie, it it just it truly feels like a high school student who read the cliff notes of the Crucible or the Scarlet Letter and then decided that he was the new Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's it's painful, and the plot twists, as such, are so arbitrary and forced that there's no reason to invest in any of the quote-unquote characters whose motivations and intentions seem to shift on a whim. And Darcy, James, poor James Darcy, he is in one of the worst positions. He's left to do with nothing to do but wince through every line as though he's trying to determine if he should trust a massive fart. And, and poor Sissy Spacek makes at least two scenes work by finding some real heart in a nothing character who comes to this revelation towards the end of the movie that in no way was set up or earned, especially, by the film in any concrete sense. And there's a lot of this. Even the witch itself goes from barely being able to open a window to flipping a damn carriage. And frankly, once the reason for the witch's existence is revealed, the scope of its varying degrees of power and the times it utilizes them are thrown into even more question. But honestly, the worst aspect of this movie is the, and I use quotations here again, the cinematography. Solomon throws every Adobe Premiere effect and swooping Steadicam shot he can think of at us. And since he's not very creative, we get the same trick over and over and over ad nauseum to the point where we're begging for something to happen that advances the plot or the scenes that doesn't involve flying around the room while these poor actors look like stunned cows. Now, it's not to say the movie is without good camera shots. The countryside is beautiful, and you'd have to be a complete amateur to not get some good footage from these places, but all too often, we either get flashes of what could have been or shots that just seem wildly out of place given the tone of the surrounding movie. It's like it's made by committee, and... And American Haunting tries to bring it home with a moral twist of some sort at the end, but it's, it's, it's a pedantic and eye-rolling way to bring the legend, as Solomon has conceived it, into the modern day. And it's a groaner. It's just like the explanation for the Bell Witch itself. It's exploitative, it's unearned, and it leaves you feeling queasy as opposed to satisfied or scared. There's no scares to be found anywhere in this movie. Uh, if you're scared by this movie, you, you don't watch a lot of horror movies. And the other problem is this. The original tale of the Bell Witch was far more nuanced and interesting. The entity was cordial to some people. It was even doting on, on Lucy Bell, the mother of the house, the Sissy Spacek character. And, and while it had some affinity for the daughter of the family, it actually broke up her engagement because uh, it, it didn't approve of her fiancé. There was at no point the level of abuse seen in this film. And in addition, the actual legend itself and all of the aspects around it was a fascinating microcosm of the religious and superstitious cross-sections of the South at the time and the way it captured the public's imagination. I mean, even Andrew Jackson, when he was a general, was publicly intrigued by the story. So it was something that captured people's minds at the time uh, and, and the way that people interpreted it and experienced it. Was a, was a, would be, have been a fascinating topic. But instead here, we just get something fatuous and unnecessary. And this movie had the opportunity to create a fascinating study of one of the more intriguing supernatural stories in American history. And instead, it decided to waste our time with this ridiculous overdirection, these potboiler plots 
horrible dialogue, offensive depictions of African-Americans. Yeah, there's even a magical Negro in the film who understands all that black magic so much better than the white folk because there's, there's no way that a respectable white lady would know such things, but Lord knows the slaves do. Oh, it's bad. And then there's a climax and a conclusion that's so ridiculously undeserved and unpleasant, it, it makes you wonder why you sat through the whole thing up until that point. There's bad horror movies, and then there are horror movies that have no right to be bad. And they aren't even fun bad. They should be good. There's no reason for them to, to be bad in this way. They're not fun bad. They're just awful. This is one of those movies. So eh, I'll keep it simple. Don't watch it. But if you want, you can watch the movie I watched on day 12, which was House of Frankenstein. All the way back to 1944, I needed a palate cleanser, needed to go back to some classics and watch this old movie uh, directed by Earl Kenton and starring Boris Karloff, as you would imagine with a movie with the name Frankenstein in the title. However, if you're here looking for Boris Karloff's monster, you're going to be somewhat disappointed because in this one, Boris Karloff plays Dr. Niemann, who is a follower of the original Dr. Frankenstein, and he wants revenge against those who wronged him, but also to follow in the footsteps of body modification, reanimation, uh, uh, that Frankenstein was pioneering. But along the way, he finds himself on the wrong side of Dracula, who's played in this movie by John Carradine, of all people. Uh, The Wolfman, who's played by Lon Chaney Jr., classic. And the Frankenstein monster itself, played in this version by Glenn Strange for the first time, uh, which is bizarre. It's bizarre to see it when Karloff is also on screen. But Strange goes on to play the monster twice more. He plays him in House of Dracula and in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. This is the only time that Karloff is actually on screen with the Frankenstein monster and doesn't play him. But this movie is actually really entertaining. And if you leave... I mean, well, that, if you leave logic and continuity of the larger Universal Pictures universe out of the equation, it is. If you treat it like a standalone, it's actually a really, a fairly fun romp. So long as you're not too much of a fan of any of the particular monsters in the movie. Uh, I mean, Frankenstein's monster gets the worst of it. He's only active on screen for less than five minutes. Uh, Dracula doesn't fare too well either. <laughs> He's, he doesn't have a Transylvanian accent for one thing. You've got John Carradine be ve- being very British. And, and he, frankly, when he goes out in this movie, it is more stupidly than Dracula goes out in any other Dracula movie. And that includes the Hammer movies where, like, he's struck by an errant bolt of lightning or he willingly walks into a deadly holly bush. It's, this movie's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for Dracula. But on the upside, Lon Chaney Jr. does what he does again here, and he plays poor tortured Lawrence Talbot until the full moon sends him out to munch on Billingers one more time. Uh, But really, the crazy thing is, the best monster in this movie is Daniel, who's the hunchback assistant to Karloff's Dr. Niemann, kind of like an Igor, kind of like a hunchback of Notre Dame. He's played by J. Carol Naish, who was a massive character actor around the time, and he appeared over uh, in over 200 films in his career. And ironically, in his last film appearance in 1971, he finally got to play Dr. Frankenstein. But in this film, he is a fascinating character, possibly even more fascinating than Karloff's Niemann character. 
He's lovelorn. He's self-loathing. He's brutal and bestial, but he's also gentle and kind. And Naish plays it so delicately, especially for the time when it was so easy to go over the top. And it's worth watching the movie just for his character arc. But Boris Karloff can't talk about the movie without talking about him. Out of makeup, given the the chance to truly act like a normal human being, uh, is awesome. He was so above and beyond any other actor of the time in his intensity, in his presence, and he shows off both of those here. He shreds any poor actor who shares a scene with him, aside from Naish. Uh, He makes every scene he's in riveting. And the brisk pace of the film, coupled with with Karloff's scene-shoeing efforts and the menagerie of monsters, it kept me entertained the whole time. Now, that being said... Sometimes the movie moves too quickly and the time given to certain scenes but not to others is a certain nitpick. Sometimes it's the, 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 the speed that it moves is all over the place. But the film ends just as it reaches its climax and it squanders the chance for a truly epic finale by resolving some plot threads far too quickly. And that's kind of ironic considering how much time it had given us some lesser plot points earlier in the film. It's a bit disappointing. It's a bit uneven in terms of its pacing. Uh, but still a very fun watch. And while no one will ever say that this is the best film in any of these monsters' lists of movies, House of Frankenstein is worthwhile to throw on for a good old time. It's one of the classics that actually holds up very well as a standalone film, and it can be enjoyed either sitting down to watch it with a, with a bowl of popcorn, or you can just have it on the background of a good Halloween party. So definitely recommend this one. But then I, I just fell in love with Boris Karloff so much in that movie, I needed more Karloff. I needed more Boris in my life. So I went to 1965 on Amazon Prime and watched Die, Monster, Die, which, yeah, with that title alone, you know you're going to get a, a schlocky movie, but uh, it's, it rises above that a bit. There, it's, it's about, uh, how shall I put this? There's, there's an evil secret in Boris Karloff's cellar in his old house on the heath, and an unwanted visitor is going to find out what it is, as well as all the other horrible secrets which hide about the property. Ooh. Now, this is a very loose, very loose adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's Color Out of Space. Uh, but Die, Monster, Die is best gone into if you like films where there are creepy old houses, mysterious afflictions, campy, poorly made-up monsters. This is a couple of steps above Mystery Science Theater, but only because... Of the acting. And also because Boris Karloff is always a joy to watch, even though he's stuck in a wheelchair for most of the running time. Um, Although there is a missed opportunity at the end to have him revisit an old famous role, wink, wink, at least in some sort of physical acting homage, they didn't really pull the trigger on that. But the rest of the cast is, they're fine, they're good. It's, It's notable, actually, that this is one of the last roles of I'll call him a poor man, Steve McQueen, Nick Adams, who has actually a really interesting life story, should you choose to read up on it. Uh, Long story short, he was a man's man party boy who loved to flaunt his close friendships with the likes of James Dean and Elvis, and he died, some would say mysteriously, of an overdose of prescription medicines long before that was a popular trend around Hollywood. So, interesting little kind of spooky Hollywood story there if you want to look into that but that's neither here nor there the simple fact is this movie's not bad its worst aspect is the schlocky title and the monster makeup which is abysmal 
but the atmosphere itself is is wonderful aside from some tragically bad matte paintings but the and the mood is well set up by the directing and the script and it gives the whole proceedings a sense of doom and dread uh and there's some there's some really creepy scenes but it is a schlocky movie at its core of course which the title underlines but it's 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 more adventurous and it's further out there than a lot of its kin though by the time it was released in 65, a lot of these tropes and mannerisms must have seemed somewhat outdated. But taken out of context now, it's actually a really fun watch. You got Adam's thick New York accent clashing with Karloff's smooth British murmur. And there's some wildly out there scenes for the time, like this menagerie of mutant monsters that the film calls a zoo from hell. And uh, uh, at the climax... Yeah, if it wasn't for the makeup looking like literal tinfoil, it would have actually been a pretty worthy capstone to this film. It's not perfect, but it'll do. And despite being a bit meandering, it was exactly what I wanted out of an old, campy, schlocky horror film. But I did mention it was Lovecraft, or based loosely on Lovecraft, and on one specific story in particular, that being The Color Out of Space. But I, to talk about how it handled the story in Die, Monster, Die... I would need to talk about the film I watched on the next night, on day 14. And that film is The Color Out of Space, the new movie from 2019 directed by Richard Stanley and written by Stanley and Scarlett Ameris. And Richard Stanley is an interesting case. He's been a music video director, a war documentarian. Uh, He was the guy they fired off of 1996's Island of Dr. Moreau, disaster before they got john frankenheimer to come in and take responsibility for the mess uh there's a great documentary out there called lost soul about the making of that movie and the madness that went into it but uh but now richard stanley is back and he's uh he's apparently trying his hand at lovecraft films now this is the first of three the next one's going to be called the dunwich horror which is an awesome story and uh, given some of the visuals in this movie i can't wait to see what he does with that and because the visuals in this movie are the strong point when you're dealing with a lovecraft story about an alien which is only described as an otherworldly and indescribable color you're already up against the wall in terms of what you can do right it's literally described as indescribable and it's a color so Die Monster Die did it with this neon green light and a high-pitched warbling sound. Color Out of Space uses a pinkish-purple, misty, electric CGI pastiche thing. And there's a lot of optical effects, including this vast oversaturation and eye-piercing clarity of focus. It's really cool-looking. And for the most part, that's successful. This is certainly the best-looking, strictly Lovecraft movie that there is, at least in terms of the visuals. There's a decent amount of good, goopy body horror, which it will make you think of The Thing or From Beyond, and it's always a good time to have some good body horror. And most of it, most of the body horror also, I'm happy to say, is practical. And that always gets points in my book. There's a good pace to the film. The action is exciting. There are some creepy scenes that are really unsettling, just disturbing as hell. And there's a, self-med- there's a self-mutilation moment. Oh, my God that had me leaping off the couch like a cat being hit with water. Oh, I'm actually getting goosebumps thinking about it right now. That's a good sign. But we got to talk Nicolas Cage because this is a Nicolas Cage movie. And, and honestly, it's not, just, it's not just him. It's the cast in general. But let's start with him. 
he is looking less and less human as the years go by. And this movie is no exception. And it wouldn't be a problem if he, were try- if he weren't trying to play the every dad in this movie. He's, it's like a, a Craig T. Nelson in Poltergeist situation, but with a, a weirder hairline. Now, his odd mannerisms and weirdo acting scenes are, aren't a deal breaker per se. In fact, sometimes they save the movie from its other failings, but it does distance us from the one character in the movie we really need to empathize with. And it makes it hard to truly engage on an emotional level. And this is compounded by the fact that the entire main family of the movie, the ones who own the alpaca farm, which the color happens to infect, are utterly atrocious as characters. The daughter is irredeemably obnoxious and self-obsessed. The stoner brother is a caricature without a single shred of personality, charisma, or reason we should give a single solitary fuck about him. And the little goggle glasses boy is a fucking prop. That's it. He is there to be precociously cute and stare off into space at the colorful plants that are growing out of the well and nothing more. Now, Jolie Richardson, who I last remember seeing in Event Horizon, which is a far superior movie made by a worse director, ironically, she's actually somewhat sympathetic, but that she goes so quickly into frustrated working wife mode that it jeopardizes the little care we have for the family. Now, it's fun in slasher movies to watch the shithead kids get dismembered and destroyed, but in a movie like this, you need to care about the family that's getting attacked by an incomprehensible alien monstrosity, or else you're just annoyed that it's taking so long. And in the scenes when they're not engaged in self-destruction or mutation, you're cringing at how poorly they are written and presented, especially the daughter. Oh my God. She's the worst character I've seen this year, and I watched American Haunting and Cry of the Banshee. But the bottom line is, this is a film worth watching, if only because true horror heads are going to love the body horror and the cool visuals and the gore and the monsters, and yes, the wackadoo Nick Cage performance. And you know what? It's the most faithful interpretation of this particular Lovecraft story, although I haven't seen Defaba yet, which is supposed to be a very good version as well, but the, of the ones I've seen. Now, where Die, Monster, Die keeps the idea of a meteor crashing on Earth and mutating all the things it comes into contact with from the story, including plants, animals, and humans, etc., etc., etc. That's about where the similarities end. The location, the plot, the characters are all different, and the final product is a pretty far cry from that original story. But however, Stanley's Color Out of Space, this new one, more or less keeps the locale, the basic idea of the characters, although their backstories and personalities and their deaths are somewhat different. Uh, The color itself is pretty accurate in the newer movie, though the best interpretation of the actual effects, I think, was in another movie called Annihilation. And that movie is only very, like, even more loosely based on the original story than Die, Monster, Die, but it more or less lifts the idea of the color right out of the story and places it in a totally new framework. And the way Annihilation is shot is far more elegant, too, with the color appearing as like a fractalization or a prisming of light itself, not as this bright purple blob like it is in Stanley's version. But that's that's not the intent of Color Out of Space, of of, of Stanley's movie. Annihilation, which is 
brilliant, by the way, is about metaphorical self-destruction through one's own life choices and the way we callously reinvent ourselves and therefore destroy our former selves through decisions we don't often ponder enough given the situation. (sighs) It's about a lot. And Color Out of Space is about a weird little family getting fucked up by a light monster from outer space. So you get what you get. It's not a perfect film by a long shot, but it's certainly worth a watch. And it's certainly, I hate to say it, except for the family, it's a lot of fun. So worth, worth checking out. It is right now featured on Shudder, so you can check it out over there. And that's the seven movies for week two of Horror Palooza. So where am I at now? I've got a bunch of rules I've got to be following, so let's look back and see where I'm at. I've only got one of my movies from the 40s, and that's House of Frankenstein. I've got nothing so far from the 50s. I've only got one film from the 60s. That's Die, Monster, Die. I've got both of my necessary films from the 70s, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, and Cry of the Banshee. I have a ton of stuff from the 80s. The Stuff, Dolls, Bride of Reanimator. I've got nothing from the 90s. Oh, boy. I've got one piece of shit from the 2000s. It's American Haunting. And I have a ton of stuff from the last decade. The Endless, Taking of Deborah Logan, Tigers Are Not Afraid, The Lodge, 1BR, Color Out of Space. Uh, I recommend all of those movies actually so far, except for An American Haunting and Cry of the Banshee. Those two avoid. Um, But that being said, I've I've only had one foreign language film so far this year. And that's Tigers Not Afraid. So I'm way behind. Damn you, 2020. So will I make it in time? I don't know. I guess you'll have to come back and find out as the weeks progress. But first, first we have something very exciting that I'm happy to share with all of you that have seen the new movie 1BR. And if you haven't seen it, go check it out on Netflix first. It is out there. It's easy to find. Beware of spoilers because we are about to deal with some spoilers. It's coming up next. So watch the movie first. But... Here today for the first ever Horror Palooza interview is producer Alok Mishra and two members of the cast, the brilliant Naomi Grossman and the wonderfully mustachioed Clayton Hoff. Welcome, everybody. Thank you, guys. Thanks for coming in. <laughs> Thanks for having us. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Um, so, the first things first, I want to break the ice a little bit here. I want to know everyone's most embarrassing moment. And then I also want to talk about the fact that this movie, I, I know from having kind of talk to a loke a little bit that there was a lot of struggles with the production itself and there was a lot of mm, happenings that went on while it was being made so uh, i want to start by finding out what everyone's most embarrassing moment filming this movie was and then i want to talk about the movie itself so what was what was everyone's most embarrassing moment filming this ladies first (laughs) (laughs) i mean i'm glad you clarified uh filming this because i was like oh my god do i tell them about the time i like pooed my pants in the streets of buenos aires do i tell the time when i um uh filming this we didn't have any embarrassing moments i know it was never embarrassed i was a little embarrassed um uh with my hair and makeup job but that wasn't my problem that was theirs And I and and technically I have had worse, uh, you know, hair and makeup. Uh, in fact, that's sort of my thing. Apparently, people just see me and they want to cast me as uh, with really bad hair and makeup. Uh, no, I, I I honestly don't have a, an embarrassing moment. Really, I don't. you you can tell the Buenos Aires story if you really want to. I no, I really didn't, and that's why <laughs> okay. I. 
<laughs> I was like, oh God, I needed to be prepped for this. Uh, all I'm saying, uh, you know, uh, what I will say about that is that um, provoleta, which is that basically like melted cheese, it's a monster. <laughs> and just really, if you go to Argentina, like, just be careful with the cheese. Um, uh, no, uh, you know what, Clayton? Why don't you start? And if I think of one, I'll 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 jump in. Oh man! You know, um, one day we were sitting in uh, hair and makeup. Uh, I mean, I don't know how embarrassing this is, but I I totally, which is my mo. I'm bad with names, and I totally fucked up uh, Giles' name. Uh, we were sitting there talking, and I called him Nigel. And I don't know why the <laughs> hell I called him Nigel. I did it. I, I think I did it because I, I had a friend, actually, whose name is Nigel, who uh, Alok knows. And uh, we used to go to bars, and Nigel acted like, <laughs> Nigel from Liverpool. I'm Nigel from Liverpool. And he had this really, like, horrible, bad accent from Liverpool. And I guess my wires got crossed, and I was like, called uh, Giles Nigel and he looked at me he's like Clayton I know your name my name is not <laughs> Nigel it's Giles I was like oh shit man it's so something I didn't here. know wait a minute so Giles is actually he is British and has a British accent that was his American accent in the oh, film mm -hmm. yes oh, yeah. yeah flawless I had no idea indeed yeah he, wow. he, would, yeah. he, would, he would cut his scenes and then just you know go on and um, just go on in his English accent funny funny fact about Giles though we had a, the, the cat was named Giles as well. Yes. Um, and then we had Haley Giles, who played the seductress nurse, you know, new wife. Mm -hmm. We don't get to see in the movie very well, but she like gives the dad a drink over his shoulder. Right. Which, She's that, a part, which that part is actually shot at my old house, by the way, because um, we needed to save money. I'm a greedy producer. Uh, but the funny thing is that fucking cat was just amazing. Like, you call that cat one take Giles. And so we would call Giles Maddie, the actor, as a joke, out to set when the cat was acting, and we'd say, hey, hey, look at that, Giles. That's fucking one-take Giles over there. What the fuck happened to you? Like, <laughs> to no end. We're going to call you up. Nigel if you keep messing up takes. Is that what you're saying? Know, right? Yeah. No, but he was, uh, Giles is amazing. Giles, like, can also yes. cry, like, three different ways and is, can, is just a, a consummate, no, like, professional act. I mean, amazing actor. I mean, he's in everything from Ford versus Ferrari to, like, the the, Steve, the shitty Steve Jobs movie um, to, like, 24. He was in that show, the one that wasn't with the Kiefer Sutherland. Like, right. Like, a big part in that. But um, but going back to your original question, uh, you asked what was my most embarrassing moment, and I will tell you, every fucking time I have to be in the movie because I'm not a fucking actor. That's the one thing. I'm not a fucking actor. And that, that was one thing. And you can play a drinking game as Naomi Gersman would tell you, uh, you know, every time I come on drink, but make sure you top, pour yourself something very tall and very uh, non-powerful because you will be drunk by the end of it. Cause I'm in every, you I, show I, I up a lot. You show I didn't up a lot. Be. You know what happened is that they'd be like, we wouldn't, we had friends and family or were extras. And some people wouldn't show up and they'd be like, you need to, Get out there. Uh, get out there right now. I'm like, why are you wearing a fucking Lego logo t-shirt again? You know. And I'm like, I don't know that I'm going to be in the movie. I really hope I'm not going to be in the movie. But I'm, so, I'm surprised as the producer, you didn't take the chance when you had the opportunity to be the guy that everyone was slapping in the one scene and just let everyone get it out in one scene, just slap you over and over and over again. You know, I know that, that, that that's a funny idea, actually. And maybe for the sequel, uh, who knows? I mean, maybe it's possible. <laughs> 
Um, you know, uh, usually like Shane Worcester, my producing partner and I are actually in the background and we're moving things. Hence I'm mover number one and he's mover number two in terms of our names. And one of the other producers is always just sort of lurking about, uh, Alec Cantor and he's, he's, he's called lurker number one. So, you know, that's, that was the, 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 the embarrassment of riches that we had, like uh, of stupidity that we had going for us. Uh, the other part that I would be embarrassed about was I had to read with Naomi Grossman and I did a terrible I was going to say, <laughs> that, that <laughs> is, I think that, that that's mine now that I've gotten to think about it. Um, again, I had to work through my own like PTSD flashbacks from Buenos Aires, but um, uh, you know, I, I, I found out about this movie in like March and we started in December. So I had about, uh, in nine months on everyone else, uh, only because, you know, some people like actually three of the main leads all came in like literally like the weekend before we now, started the, shooting on the a original Monday. Leads? The original no, leads are the new ones. No, they were all replaced. So right. we'll tell you that story too. If you oh, like, I but, need to know that story. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, um, basically though, I, you know, when uh, Alok was working on another project, which fell through. And so he was quick, like scrambling to like find, find something. Uh, and that's when he came across this script, which is that, which actually was, um, offered to him, uh, by uh, David Marmor, the director, uh, writer, um, after one of those, you know, douchebag meetings where people in Los Angeles just sit around and talk about themselves. And, was it at the uh, Ivy? Then, was it at the Ivy? I have to Yeah, it was most likely, I'm sure. Actually, it was in Culver City. It was at, uh, what's oh. that place in the middle that uh, is, it, it doubles for the Tron. It was in the original Tron movie. Uh, it's a chef's name. Uh, Akasha. 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 That's where it was. That's, that's Less douchebag than I'd, I'd pictured it myself, actually. I, well, I, I mean, was at the what, Ivy yeah. as I was telling the story. But so, you know, uh, basically, Alok had been sitting on this script all this time. Um, and th then finally found it because, you know, out of necessity and um, told me to read it. I was totally on board because... Well, let's face it. It's sort of my genre. Um, I didn't choose it, but it chose me and I'm, you know, I'm going with it. Uh, and, um, and the fact is it's really well written. You know what I mean? Like I always say, like as an architect's daughter, like I know, like if, if the foundation is good, then you have a, you know, if the blueprints work, then you have a building. If you, if the script is sucks, like there's no movie. So I was on board from the very beginning. Uh, what I did not realize is that he was going to surprise me with a call for an audition like in November. So like basically eight months later. And I was like, wait, what? I have to audition? Like I thought I would offer it. Like I was the one like on board, like telling him to even like to do it. But, um, you know, alas, uh, it was just a formality. It was really just to uh, meet with David um, and, you know, kind of find out, find where I fit in all this. Um, but it it was funny, you know, Alok is a total character. He's also like a dear friend of mine. And um, I just know from many a late night drunken trivial pursuit game, like one of his really sly like ways of like winning ultimately is like the way he'll read a question. Okay, you could know the answer to this particular trivial pursuit question, but the way he'll read it, like 
slow the fast like it'll even it'll even happen with his internet like and you're like what's happening like that is how he was reading like because he was my reader in the audition you know he was the person i was like acting against <laughs> and i swear to god it was like he was trying to to sabotage me uh, and and fortunately like i've been in acting classes where we actually do that exercise where we have like a bad casting director where you like you know you know, it's almost like preparing for a, a, a debate with Donald Trump. You know what I mean? Like, make sure you practice having like shit slung at you and like insults fired at like at all, just so you're prepared for anything. Like, honestly, I thought I was prepared for that audition, but no, no, no one is prepared to have Alok Mishra as their reader. It just, it, yeah. So, so actually, so Alok, uh, you should sell, sell your talents to acting classes, go in there and read with people so they're prepared. <laughs> For these kinds of auditions. Listen, I'm right. not an actor. I'm trying to help out. I just I put the script to my hand and read this fucking line. Okay, I'll read this fucking line. I don't know. It's it's like... God, I'll read it I'm like a crazy person. I'll read it slow. I'll read it fast. Well, listen, she, she already had the part. Let's be honest. It was, it was a I formality. Didn't and we just I, I didn't know that. I mean, it was, like I said, it was an embarrassing moment for me to assume, you know, my good friend would just, you know, would cast me. Uh, but no, you know, here I am. It's okay. It all worked out. <laughs> it did indeed. Yeah, no. And, it, the, and the movie turned out fantastic. And you mentioned the script being a good foundation. And actually, that was one thing that really... I was pleasantly surprised by was not only was the script really strong, but you guys as actors, everyone, every single person in this movie absolutely hit the ball over the fence in this movie. I mean, uh, obviously, I mean, Naomi, we, we know from everyone who's seen American Horror Story, we know that you're, you're an awesome actress. Um, Clayton, I had never seen you before in anything, brother. I know that you were, uh, you, you went to UCSB for acting and I'd never seen you anything. And you had probably the most thankless role in this movie. Because you have to play a character who is creepy in one scene and then relatable and in some ways like the, the heart of the movie in other ways. So mm. you have to be someone who's engaging and creepy and turn it on a dime. And that's hard as hell. So I just wanted to well, shout out props to all well, that. Thank you. I just, you know, I just think, uh, you know, what God gave me this creepy looking face right here <laughs> makes it so easy to do. Right. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the funny thing, the funny, the funny thing was that Clayton, Clayton, uh, Clayton was one of the roles we actually, the producers and, and David Marmer, who was, who was the writer director, he, we actually kind of uh, clashed about because they wanted this other guy that he wanted this other guy that looked so old. And I was like, Jesus Christ, like not only he got a you know, spoiler alert, like not only poor like Sarah got to like marry this guy and fuck this guy, but he's an old fucking guy. I'd, uh, I'd kill myself too. Like, I mean, like. So we we um so Clayton Clayton never goes on social media like he go, he does now but he, yeah. he, back in the day not at all like so it just so happened we're fighting about this we need to come to a decision by like Monday and we're having to go through all these people and then like basically Clayton gets married and finally puts something on social media him and his like lovely you know new Brazilian wife like sitting there and like I was like that's fucking Lester that's fucking Lester and so like I, I called him I was like you got to read for this like right now because we're gonna have to pick this old fucker and i don't want him and like he's, and he's a good actor by the way that other guy too don't get me wrong but it's just i just didn't think it fit the character and so I, I begged clayton to read for it and he was like all right i'll do it i'm gonna do it like late though but he had he had to get off of work and he had an acting class that day and all this crap and he had to like film it like at two o'clock in the morning and on the sunday on, like you know sunday morning let's call it right and so he, he filmed it sent it to us and we woke up on sunday morning we watched it i was like 
that's fucking Lester. And I showed it to the director, and the director was just like, all right. And it was undeniable. But meanwhile, Clayton's like, you know, he just got married. He's taken off to New Orleans and stuff. And like, by the time I get a hold of him, He's on, it's, a, it's a, like 11 o'clock on like Monday. He's on Frenchman Street. Uh, exactly. And like, you know, I was like, you got the part. And he's like, ah, I can dance to this nice music in the background and all this stuff. But, uh, but I was, so, I was, so ha- the lesson was here is to all actors is wear eye patch glasses on your wedding photos and you might get cast. Exactly. I mean, he, was, he was his normal self. Exactly. So like, uh, he's a good. He's, he's actually a good. He keeps like, actually cleans up very nicely, despite his own like summation that he's <laughs> exactly. ugly or creepy or whatever it is. I never said I was ugly. I just I mean, creepy, know, creepy. Creepy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Semantics. The Some real man. lesson to actors is to book a ticket because that's how it works. Every time you're True. going on your new or you know your um, uh, newlywed, you know, honeymoon in New Orleans, uh-huh. or in my case, uh, when we did the um, reshoots, it just happened to be the same weekend as the Emmys. Like, how many times are you nominated for an Emmy? I mean, in my case, once. And yet, you know, Kira Loke is like, like, hey, will you come again and um, basically be paid like no money? to be in this little low budget movie that I allegedly mortgaged my already paid for house to, to, to do like, will you come back? We squandered you, Naomi. We realize now the movie's really all about Janice and, and we, we didn't realize it until now we need you back. Now that's the way you get me back by the way. Like, listen, I missed like there were gifting suites, there were parties, there was, I mean, plenty, you know, to be done that weekend um, uh, other than shoot this movie. But I, I'm not going to lie. I am not bitter. I am proud. I did the right thing. Um, and we wouldn't have been number one on Netflix otherwise. No, I don't know. <laughs> but I will say, I, I, I knew that we had potentially a really great movie. And, you know, uh, I'm not saying I made it great for being there that weekend. But, but um, you know, it, I didn't hurt it. No, but you make a good point about like when you make plans, that's when things actually happen in life. That's what I'm also trying to say. Very much in acting as well. If you're if you're any kind of actor, things always happen like when you've already gotten plans. And I know that you guys had a lot of plans for this movie. You had actually had a look, as I recall, you had two, three, three leads cast. You had um, what ended up the, the the Sarah Park cast, the Brian Park cast. Um, I'm going to actually at some point have to make my dog professional here because he's, t- he's letting me know that we're protected. No one's coming <laughs> through that front door right now. I might have to go put him away in a second here. But so, look, I know you had um, the Sarah Park cast, the Brian Park cast, and the Miss Stanhope Park cast, and you lost them all in the space of, I think, 24 hours. Is that right? That's true. Um, you know, here's the horrible part about it. Like, just like your dog is barking at the door, uh, now, now the gardeners are here. Because they, they, they're supposed to be here, too. But now it's four thirty, and they're here. So amazing, right? Um, what we're we saying about plans, about making plans and things e- happening. Exactly, right. exactly the case. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. I'm, I'm gonna let Naomi Grossman tell the story because she's become quite good at it. We're trying to, <laughs> we, we work at finishing each other's sentences, and I'm just gonna mute myself while they're right outside my goddamn window right now. Uh, so Naomi, please, uh, humor us with the uh, story of uh, like how I almost lost my mind in the uh, Marina Del Rey Gelsons. Ah, easy. Okay, so. Basically, um, the Sarah character, which is, of course, she's in, like, absolutely every shot of this movie. So, you know, like, we need her. Um, She was initially cast as this uh, 
um, actress on some CW show. Who knows? She'll never work again. We're not naming her. Um, in any case, uh, they had her lined up to play uh, Sarah. Um, the only uh, the whole reason why, of course, is because she had like a bazillion Instagram followers. Because nowadays in Hollywood. Um, yeah, not only do you need plans, like, you know, for either a honeymoon or, like, maybe the Emmys, but also uh, uh, as many Instagram followers as possible, this is what producers want, and it's upsetting. As a, a you know, don't get me wrong, I've got a, a fine following myself, but I also, like, went to drama school, and it, like, makes me sad to think that, like, you don't need to actually know, like, Ibsen and, uh, you know, check off. Like, you really just need, like, to be, like, a Vine star or whatever. Anyway, I digress. Basically, this lady had, like, a ton of social media followers and therefore was cast in this role. Um, in her writer was uh, the fact that she needed a certain feminine energy drink. Basically, it's kind of like, you know, having a green M&M in, in the bowl of M&Ms or whatever. Like, that's, that was her thing. And, um, listen, if it were me, I would have been like, this lady sounds high maintenance, forget it. Let's just hire that other girl, Nicole Biden Bloom, who's going to take the role anyway. But alas, they did not have that foresight at the moment. Loke's just trying to be the best producer he is. Uh, I mean, literally not only, well, he's a money grabbing producer is what he is, but, um, you know, he's also like, this is, he's a first time producer. He's just tr trying to do it right by everybody. Like, you know, he's, he's everything to this movie. He's, he's an extra, as we mentioned, like uh, at least a half dozen times. He's, uh, uh, he, I mean, he's driving to the Marina del, Marina del Rey Gelson's just to get this girl some energy drink because you know, don't get me wrong. They uh, hired a whole truck to uh, have it hauled in, but of course, the truck was going to be like a couple days late. And you know, a low can't let his you know star have be without en feminine energy drink for three whole days. So he actually drives. And again, for people who not in Los Angeles, they don't realize like the sacrifice it is to get on the four hundred five to the to the ninety all the way to Marin del Rey to get a freaking energy drink. It's ridiculous. In any case, you got to imagine he's there with the manager. He, he's like begging, hey, can you just look in the back? Maybe you've got more energy drink. The manager's like, I really don't think so, dude. He's like, please, will you please? So sure enough, manager goes in back while he's get, looking for energy drink. Alok gets a phone call. The actress is out. No explanation. She's just out. As is the Brian character. Her friend, boyfriend, we don't know. Another just like actor that from maybe some, I don't know, CW show. Who cares? We don't. Anyway, um, so here Alok is like... <laughs> Like, what am I doing? Um, the, the manager comes back, like, found some energy drink. And it looks like, we don't need it. They um, ended up, uh, you know, what do you do when you're in, um, you know, a high stakes, like, drama? Uh, drink. At least that's what Alok does. Um, in fact, where's your beer, dude? Anyway, uh, oh, oh, there it is. There it is. Okay. Um, so, uh, basically they had to Barney's beanery, you know, to figure this out and, um, uh, start, you know, making some phone calls, getting uh, Michael Blum and Gersh and everybody on, on the horn trying to, you know, stay late, open late. Let's, you know, we've got to get some more actors. Uh, they ended up getting in touch with, uh, Giles Maddie, who ended up playing the Brian character, um, who, uh, was 
um, actually driving down from San Francisco at the time um, and like pulled over, you know, just to like read his part. Um, it's funny. Uh, Alok tells this story as if this is unusual. Again, actually, this is very common. Like actors just want to work. And, you know, as long as we can like skim through and make sure it's not a porno, we're probably uh, uh, like on board. Right. Uh, anyway, I mean, I'm just saying I've done it. I've totally done it. Not and sometimes, sometimes even sure if it's, it's not. porno. It's like, well, if it's a well-written one, maybe. <laughs> right. Again, if the foundation is there. Um, anyway, Giles, Giles came in last minute, as did uh, Nicole. Nicole actually ended up being um, uh, David's first choice. Uh, but, you know, the money-grabbing producer won out ultimately uh but she really was just like the best thing that happened to us um she came in from new york she had three hours of rehearsal time with uh david which is nothing i mean film and television we rarely have much but that's really nothing especially to carry an entire film of which you're literally on like every frame um but it really it worked out it was kind of meta you know she was the only one from out of town so she was sort of you know fish out of water like the rest of us all live here so we're all like oh you know what are you doing tonight oh go into that restaurant in culver city oh oh well I, I was gonna go to the ivy whereas you know she's sort of just like stuck in some hotel room a very nice hilton i'm told uh in Alok's defense but um you know still like the girls you know for all we know you know he probably got her a a, a, a rental car she didn't even know how to drive you know what i mean like she's definitely one of us, us is not like the other and that that was nicole bryden bloom in this situation uh, the last character oh i should maybe tell you the timeline too uh the gelson's incident was on a monday they were supposed to be shooting on that thursday so they they ended up buying a little time um they got these guys you know subsequently uh but it was Friday, Friday, yes, Friday. They ended up pushing to shoot an, until Monday of the next week, and um, I was going to say one uh, thing. One thing that one thing that yeah. we left out was that on the same Monday, the Miss Stanhope character that we oh, had, I haven't told that part yet. I'm well, right there. I was going to say we, she, well, I was saying that what happened on that Monday, we lost all three people. Oh, like, oh, right. Sorry. Yes, I, I don't. I, were you at Barney's yet or not? We were at the bar. Yes, you were at the bar. Okay, so here they are, like figuring it out at the bar. And that's when they got this phone call from the woman originally lined up to play this Miss Stanhope character. Turns out her husband has been rushed to the hospital and is dead. Gone. They're, he, she's out. So they're just, again, losing their mind. Turns out, um, you know, they ended up getting Susan Davis's reel. Uh, at the end, there's like a, you know, phone number at the end, which Alok called, uh, thinking he was going to get like an agent or manager. No, it's her. Uh, you know, Alok is like, listen, um, this is highly inappropriate, but I'm going to pitch in the movie. I'm going to pitch us. And she listens and she's just like, oh, well, I've never been in a, a cold movie before. And so that was at 930 in the morning on Friday. And by 1130, she was signed. And uh, so there you go. I mean, let me tell you, even though I was, you know, lined up to do this movie since March, I'm positive my agents took well over two hours to get me signed. So kudos to her and her agent and Alok because they really, they, they cast the shit out of this movie. It was amazing. I can't, and that's, that's just the casting. Wait till you get, you hear about the fires and the hot felon. 
who stole all of our production equipment. Wait, hot now felon is in he is was he was on fire or he was hot as in he was an attractive felon? Both. <laughs> okay, definitely have to hear that story. But I want I want to hear so wait a minute. So we know how you were cast. We know how the three leads were cast last minute and and I I'm with you. I can't imagine anyone else playing those roles after right. seeing them in it. I mean, all of them knocked out of the park and and like you said Nicole Bryden Bloom I, I was blown away by her range and her subtlety in this movie. There's some scenes where you have to be so delicate and there's so much going on on so many levels and she just, she nails it. Um, but, mm -hmm. but, but as I said earlier, I was also really impressed Clayton with you as well. How did you get cast? Was it just straight up like, Oh yeah, there was a part, my agent put me in for it and auditioned and here I am. Or was it, was it more complicated than that? No, it was, well, it was the story, story we told before. It was uh, literally, you literally uh, saw a picture story. on Facebook. Yeah, and, oh, yeah, right, right, yeah, and he was like, "That, that's the guy I want." But how did you know him, Alok? Like, how did you, how did you uh, find him? Clay, we, we, know know other, we know each other. from the bar. From the from going to the bar. From the bar. From from a uh, Bigfoot West. Uh, yeah, okay, I had a good so, friend, okay. My friend Nigel, who I mixed up Giles right. with, uh, was was a bartender there, and and I would frequent the bar, do trivia night, and Alok would be there with his dog, drinking dark beer, and we made acquaintances, and then became friends on Facebook, so we could hang out digitally. And then he saw me digitally post that picture. And now I'm wondering if, if Nigel is a mutual acquaintance of ours because I actually helped open that bar. So now I'm actually, I'm curious if we've ever. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I, think, I think he came along later, but I'll tell you another funny thing is that our executive producer, Peter Polk, and I also met at Bigfoot and he was you know, very responsible for us for two things. One, for us getting into Fantasia because uh, he's like, uh, he's Ty West's producer. Uh, he did like House of the Devil and like, you know, all, anything Ty West has done, Peter Polk has produced. And um, he was also instrumental, Peter Polk, in, uh, for us getting our uh, distributor sales agent, Dark Sky. Dark Sky is a great um, outfit for sure. They're a boutique sort of agency. They're actually honest, which is crazy in this world of like, that's like the, those, I mean, I'll be honest. I don't give a shit who knows. Sales agent distributors are like the biggest like uh, uh, crooks in this business, <laughs> like it's hard to find an honest one. That's going to give you accurate projections of what they think your, your movie's going to do. And then actually, you know, achieve those projections. You know, a lot of them will leave you just do enough to make their nuts and then leave you by the side of the road to die. But we met Peter Polk also at Bigfoot as well. So that's, that was another happy happenstance from, uh, you know, uh, going to the bar. <laughs> that, partic See, that particular bar yeah yes. drinking is how you you know get cast or cast it's how you figure out you know i mean you know all your pro all life's problems who knew well i'll drink to that but unfortunately we're out of time for this episode of horror palooza luckily we have two more episodes to go that's right next week we will be back with numbers 15 through 21 of the horror movie marathon as well as part two of this interview with Naomi Grossman, Clayton Hoff, and Alok Mishra from 1BR. So thank you to them for hanging out with me today. And of course, thank you to my musical contributors, the Tiki Creeps and 414 Beg. And thank you to all of you out there listening to this very show. My name is Sir Ian Dangerous, a.k.a. Your Uncle Frank. You can find me on Twitter at Sir Ian Dangerous or on Instagram at Sir Ian Dangerous. Thank you very much, and we will see you next time right here on... 